The fire at Grenfell Tower a year ago last week was, above all, a tragedy for its residents, their friends and their families. For many, it's also come to symbolise a deeper crisis in British society. But others have pushed back, warning against a rush to conclusions while the inquiry continues and arguing to keep the focus on fire safety. On the Weekly Economics podcast today, we're giving you an update on what we've learned since that night, what the inquiry has heard, and the shifting national conversation around Grenfell. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay with us. So we're skipping our usual headline segment this week and dedicating the entire episode to talking about what we've learned since the fire at Grenfell Tower. We don't have all the answers, of course, but I'm really pleased to be joined by guests who can hopefully shed some light on all of this. So first up, we've got Katia Nassim, who is a campaigner with the Radical Housing Network. Hi, Katia. Hi. Uh, Very briefly, can you give us one sentence on what the Radical Housing Network is? The Radical Housing Network is a London-wide alliance of housing groups and campaigns um, fighting for housing justice. Amazing. Thank you. So succinct. Um, And Luke Barrett is also joining us, who is a business reporter at Inside Housing, the weekly magazine for Britain's social housing sector. Hi, Luke. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Great. So I thought we'd talk about three main things. So what the inquiry is doing, what do we know so far about what went wrong, and then a bit about the wider debate around Grenfell and what it does or doesn't signify. So let's start by talking about the independent public inquiry. So Luke, I'm going to start with you. Um, I understand you've been attending some of the hearings. Um, What have you heard so far? Uh, Well, so far, um, it's not been going that long, but uh, we're in phase one of the inquiry, which is focused on what exactly happened on the night of 14th of June 2017. Uh, So we've had opening statements and we've had stories from some of the survivors of what they experienced on the night. Um, And so there was some debate and controversy about the terms of the inquiry when it was first set up. What do you think the inquiry is like trying to find out? I guess, what's the purpose? And is there anything missing from the agenda, in your opinion? So obviously, phase one is is pretty narrow. It's just going to be going over some of the facts. Phase two, which starts next year, is supposed to look at why the fire spread. And I think some people have said, oh, it won't won't look into um, deeper societal issues and how those contributed to the building being refurbished in the way it did. I think that, to be fair, that remains to be seen. But the judge has said already the remit won't be as wide as people want. And um, one lawyer already has said that the issue of race should be brought into the inquiry Mm -hmm. uh, because obviously a disproportionate number of people in the tower block, like all tower blocks across the UK, were from black and minority ethnic backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And that's not something that's been mentioned in the terms of reference at all. Uh, And it seems like something that could have played a part in... Uh, or is at least relevant to be mentioned in the inquiry. Cathy, mm. do you have any thoughts on what might be missing? So Radical Housing Network put in a submission to the terms of reference on the Grenfell inquiry. I should actually say that one of Radical Housing Network's member groups is Grenfell Action Group, mm. um, who are the group who um, warned about fire safety prior to the fire. So in terms of the terms of reference, we call for the inquiry to actually not just focus on the technical causes of the fire, but to look at the wider housing policy and to examine the way that um, social housing is being provided and managed. And actually, when Sir Martin Morbick set out his terms, the terms of reference for the inquiry, 
he did actually say while he said clearly um, said that he would be he would be looking at the technical causes of the fire and then the inquiry would be focused on that. He also called for a parallel process mm. um, to look at some of these wider issues around Grenfell. Um, so we've yet to see anything from the government amounting to that. I think the government has essentially spoken to a few tenants, but there's been no kind of serious attempt to actually examine these wider kind of structural policy causes for the fire. Luke, did you have any thoughts on uh, the causes of the fire? Uh, well, so far, what we've got to go on is a series of expert reports that were submitted to the inquiry. They're probably the best evidence we have. Mm. Um, and the consensus there is that the primary cause of the fire spreading up the tower was the cladding that was attached to the building in a refurbishment between 2012 and 2016. Mm. And specifically, the use of polyethylene in mm. the middle of the aluminium cladding that was put on the outside, mm. uh, which pe some people have compared to petrol in the way that it reacts to fire. Mm. And I know there's been obviously lots of public debate around the cladding, but I just kind of want to dig into that a little bit more, I guess. Um, do we have kind of any conception? I don't know, Katia, if you have any thoughts on why that was used um, and how that kind of could have contributed to this, how the decision making behind that could have contributed to this tragedy? I think one of the issues that Grenfell has obviously brought brought to the forefront is issues around the kind of building and managing of social housing. There are quite complex networks of, of companies that are involved in kind of providing some of the building materials. And in a sense, actually, that industry, I mean, it's almost like self-regulating the building industry. So you mm -hmm. have people with kind of vested interests, with private interests, who are essentially regulating themselves. And that's about actually the kind of um, the, the privatisation of not only the building of social housing, but also how um, uh, managing the kind of safety issues as well. And the decision about the cladding was made by a kind of arm's length management organisation, KCTMO. I think the key thing is, is that we need kind of accountability for the building and managing of social housing. So rather than this being taken on by private companies, council housing should be managed and provided by local authorities. And that's actually the only way of ensuring that council homes are safely maintained. Mm. So we've heard talk of deregulation in connection with the fire. What sort of deregulation are we talking about specifically? And, and what does that have to do with what happened at Grenfell? So there have been a lot of changes to um, the building regulations over the last 30 years, uh, which we probably don't have time to go into in great mm. detail here. But um, they've essentially, as far as the materials are concerned, scaled back a lot of the prescriptive requirements for the precise kinds of materials that you can use on buildings. Um, introduced things like uh, desktop studies and large scale tests where, so a desktop study is where you don't actually test the material that you're putting on a building. Mm. You just do a report that extrapolates from previous tests what would happen if you did test it. And there have been a lot wow. of these that have come out where they did a desktop study on a material that has since failed government tests, mm. so obviously weren't giving the, the correct results. And I thought Katya raised a really interesting point about privatisation, which is mm. a, a kind of a thread running through a lot of this, uh, because building control in particular, which was uh, sort of partly privatised in 1985 by Margaret Thatcher, and then further privatised in 97 by John Major, which led to market forces being introduced in the building control process. So building control are people who say whether or not a building complies with building regulations. Mm. But the situation as it currently stands is that if a builder is building a building, they choose whether the local authority can be building control or whether these people called approved inspectors, which are private companies, can do the building control work. So naturally, these approved inspectors have an incentive to be more lax when it comes to building regulations. And we've actually mm -hmm. seen a presentation from one of these companies, TPS, 
special services in which they advertise their services saying plans are never rejected. Katia, what, what do you think? I mean, I just wanted to point out that it took the Prime Minister kind of 11 months to to kind of commit the money to remove the existing cladding from tower blocks. And mm. that money, which is 400 million, is actually going to be taken out of budgets for public housing. Mm. So not only uh, is the government kind of failing to, you know, tackle safety issues properly at this point, but is also actually taking, um, you know, taking money out of public housing budgets in order to do that, which mm. is um, seems a bit of a sham to me. Hmm. It's also worth saying that 400 million, some people have said that's a bit of an underestimate of how much it would cost to remove all the dangerous cladding from tower blocks. Interesting. Okay, so uh, taking a different tack for a second, I'm going to say the word LRB. We're going to talk about the uh, the infamous article. So there's been a lot of discussion um, among journalists and some people on Twitter lately about a 65,000 word piece the London Review of Books published a couple of weeks ago. Um, so for, for people who don't know, it challenges the dominant narrative um, around Grenfell. Um, that's all I'll say for now. So without going into too much detail, what were the main arguments in the piece and what was the response? I have read the entire 60,000 wow, word piece. Impressive. I mean, there were some elements to it that I, that, you know, I mean, he, there's a kind of um, a long discussion of what happened in, in the tower on that night. Actually, there are some elements to the piece, I think, talking about the building industry and issues around um, the building industry being a self-regulating industry are actually quite very clearly explained also the machinations of central government but you know the main criticism of the piece which I absolutely agree with is this this kind of focus on the Kensington and Chelsea council leaders for some reason this journalist seems to think that the crucial issue at play here is that the need to exonerate the council or that they've been unfairly vilified which feels quite low on the priority list yeah Exactly. Yeah, yeah, and I'd almost um, dis- dispute slightly what, what you said um, in, in the intro, which is that mm. it challenges the, the dominant narrative, because mm. that, that's what it says it's doing. It says everybody thinks this is only the council's fault and no one else's. Yeah. But I don't think that most people think that. I think there's been a lot of talk about what the contractors did, mm-hmm. what the government has done with regulations and, in, and after the fire. Um, so I think it, it sets up a bit of a false binary between mm. two interpretations. And, and I think it's absolutely correct that public authorities should be held accountable and, and should be under scrutiny. And, you know, mm. to say otherwise, I think is outrageous. Mm. So what was the response to the LRB piece from left and right broadly? Well, one one response from from somebody from the, the community in Kensington uh, was apparent that apparently he uh, used a video of them uh, without uh, her permission. Um, mm-hmm. he, she had been led to understand that the video was only for his purposes and that the quotes were going to be used, but the video wasn't posted, uh, which is slightly worrying. Mm-hmm. Um, there have also been quite a few people who've highlighted the factual errors uh, in the piece. For example, he says that uh, he, he talks about Bahai Lukabede, who's the man mm-hmm. in whose flat the fire started. And he says that uh, resident his, his neighbours saw him as he was leaving with a suitcase, as if he was going going off somewhere else, which kind of re- it replicates the narrative that the, some of the tabloids pushed uh, yeah. in the aftermath of the fire, uh, where they, they found some photos of him on holiday, and they, posted, mm-hmm. they put them in the newspaper. This was from a few years ago, mm-hmm. and they said, oh, look, he's gone straight on holiday after after the fire, mm-hmm. uh, which is not true. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, yeah, I mean, that really obscures actually what has been the quite impressive role that Mr. Cabedes played. Mm-hmm. Uh, he warned all his neighbours on his flat, mm-hmm. uh, on his floor, about the fire. 
Uh, he switched off the electricity in his flat via mm. the fuse box in an attempt to stop the fire from spreading. Mm. And then he ran outside and he filmed the fire spreading. He got the first footage, which mm. has been crucial in trying to figure out uh, some of the details on uh, what happened on the night. Fantastic. Um, looking ahead then, what are some of the key moments still to come in the inquiry specifically and, and what should people be looking out for? Um, so I think when phase two starts, uh, I think some of the really interesting stuff is going to come out uh, So that should be next year. Um, and that's when I think we'll find out whether it's going to tackle issues around housing policy and regulation. I honestly would be very surprised if it finds a way not to do that because the, all the lawyers representing the survivors have made very clear in their opening statements that that's what they want. Uh, so I think when we start getting into that territory, that's going to be one of the most, uh, one of the more interesting parts. Mm. So one final question from me. Um, Grenfell, obviously, as we know, has kind of um, garnered lots of uh, support and, um, you know, has, has really resonated with people, um, of course. And there's so many different groups and individuals who want to take action on this and support on driving forward a lot of the change that you've mentioned. So I guess the question from me would just be if you had any, you know, specific ways in which uh, listeners or people who are out there and want to get involved in, and support and drive this stuff forward, what, what they can do. Well, Grenfell United is a really great survivors group uh, that has grown out of the the fire. They're incredibly uh, well organised, uh, informed, and powerful in the uh, demands that they pursue and the the lines of inquiry that they that they've opened up. So, probably the best people to ask for the, uh, mm. for them. So, if anyone wants to get involved, I reckon contact them and see what see what it is they need. Awesome. Absolutely. Um, supporting the, the survivors group, Grenfell United, keeping the focus on Grenfell and finding justice for Grenfell. And um, there's actually been a public show of solidarity through the silent march that's taken place mm -hmm. every single month since the atrocity. Mm -hmm. So actually tonight, as we speak, the silent march um, is going on and I'm sure it's going to be absolutely massive. I'm heading, I'm heading there now after this. I think it is absolutely crucial that we do continue to examine housing policy and examine the, the way in which um, the building and managing of social housing, like Grenfell has pushed these issues to the forefront. And actually, there are kind of real kind of questions over like tenants having meaningful control over their homes. Mm. Amazing. So thanks for, for joining us. Um, to Luke Barrett from Inside Housing. Um, if people want to read your coverage and stay up to date, Luke, where can they find you? Uh, InsideHousing.co.uk is our website. Fab. Are you on Twitter? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at Luke W. Barrett. Awesome. Um, and Katia Nassim from Radi Radical Housing Network. Thanks. Same question. Where can people find you? Um, so on Twitter, it's at Radical Housing. Um, you can also find us on Facebook. There's a Facebook page and there's a website as well. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, so that's all we've got time for this week. If you have found this episode useful or you've liked it, please tell someone about it. Uh, and you can drop us a line with your comments, questions, thoughts, feelings. We are Weekly Econ Pod on Twitter. The Weekly Economics Podcast is produced by James Shield and brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. See you next week. Mm -hmm.